It's Monday, September 25th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser, and from Stock Advisor Canada, Taylor Muckerman. Happy Monday. Hey, hey, hey. Nice to be in a nice, cool studio. Not it's too shabby. It's going to be Master. 90 degrees again. Alexa this morning, I said, Alexa, what's the weather forecast for today? She's like, eh, it's going to be clear and sunny, and the temperature is going to hit about 185 degrees. And I thought, what? Put those shorts on. It's right. late September. Yeah. She's Des- not going to steer you wrong. No, no. She's reliable when it comes to the weather, i got to say, man. we got a bunch of news uh, for a Monday that is not earnings season. We've got a couple of deals working and a glimmer of hope for Twitter that we will get to. Let's start with Telecom. Sprint and T-Mobile are maybe, possibly, in the process of getting together. And uh, got to give credit to uh, David Faber at CNBC, who um, we've had as a guest on The Motley Fool Money uh, Show before. And he's been doing a lot of legwork on this story. But here's where things are right now. Sprint and T-Mobile are entering into due diligence in what would be a stock-for-stock deal. They are hoping to reach an agreement in the next few weeks. And this is, Jason, more complicated than just your typical potential merger, because there are controlling forces outside of T-Mobile and Sprint that are involved here. You have Deutsche Telekom, which, if this deal goes through, because they are the majority owner of T-Mobile. I think I have that right. They own a huge chunk of T-Mobile. They do. They would reportedly be the controlling owner in this whole deal. But also, SoftBank from mm-hmm. Japan is involved on the Sprint side. Let's start with this. When you first saw this story, what was your reaction? Um, I mean, I think, generally speaking, it it probably makes sense. I mean, when you look at this line of work. I mean, when you look at this business and you think, what is the main value in in one of these carriers? Where does the value lie? And I mean, it's in the network, right? It's the size, it's the reach and the reliability of the network. And so, the bigger the network is, the more reliable it is, the more subscribers you'll be able to pull in and, and you'll continue to be able to invest in that network and more spectrum. And, and you know, you just become more and more successful as you, as you grow because you have the resources to continue to grow that network. And it's why AT&T and Verizon have done so well for so long, because they, generally speaking, have two of the most reliable networks. They're obviously brand names that carry some sway with the consumer. Um, although I don't think really consumers are necessarily as brand focused, I think, here. I mean, really, the bottom line is you just want a reliable network. It's just for the longest time, AT&T and Verizon have sort of communicated that. Um, but, but to your point there, I mean, there are a lot of uh, pieces in play here when you look at Sprint. It's controlled by SoftBank, which owns 83% of the shares outstanding there. Uh, Sprint, that's about a $34 billion market cap. With T-Mobile, that is controlled, as you said, by Deutsche Telekom. They own 64% of the shares outstanding, and that's about a $53 billion market cap. So, it's two very big companies, but when you look at them in comparison to AT&T and Verizon, I mean, AT&T has a market cap of $237 billion. Verizon has a market cap of $203 billion. So, to me, I mean, I think this is something that more or less makes sense. I think this is something that probably needs to keep the leadership in, in, in Verizon and AT and T up at night because this really does, uh, this really does sort of bring their biggest competitor uh, to the market. And, and I think that if you have uh, someone like John Ledger, who who maybe would would be considered as the, as the leader of this of this new venture, he he is sort of your 
atypical CEO, right? I mean, he really takes to social media and sort of defying uh, convention in order to grow his business and communicate what the brand stands for. Yeah, it really seems like a tale of two companies. You have T-Mobile growing faster than its competitors, Sprint not so much. T-Mobile spending a bunch of money to grow, Sprint cutting cost. Now you're going to bring them together. T-Mobile's already been using Sprint's network for its customers, um, and I think that you know you've seen T-Mobile be pretty innovative in the plans that it offers and the marketing that they deliver. And Verizon and AT&T have tried to answer that, and now it's going to be a little bit more difficult for them too with the bringing that scale that Sprint's going to offer them. And the money that they've been spending has come from failed previous M&A attempts. Um, and so, they've they've put that money to good use, and uh, maybe they're trying to take advantage of some looser restrictions on uh, antitrust with the new the new uh, party in, in the White House. I don't own any of these stocks, but just selfishly, from an entertainment standpoint, I hope John Ledger oh, yeah, absolutely. ends up running this company if this deal goes through. Although, in all seriousness, you look at SoftBank and the interest they would have in this company, if it goes through, and uh, Masayoshi-san, who heads up SoftBank, is is probably going to have some ideas of his own of how <laughs> this should be led. And it may it may just be as simple as, John, you're in charge, but you're going to take my phone call whenever I want. Yeah, I would imagine. I mean, I think so. John Ledger kind of reminds me of of a Jeff Bezos style. CEO in the sense that he seems to be at least very customer centric. He's a lot more outgoing than Jeff. Bezos. No question. I mean, he's got the slow cooker Sundays going. I mean, he's the guy's on my wavelength, so to speak. But I mean, I just, I, I think that um, that's where I think a real opportunity lies for a business like this. If you were to see this this combined entity here. Um, Someone who's just not afraid to get out there, defy convention a little bit, put a face on the brand. I mean, I you know you can't really sit there and put a face on the brand of Verizon or AT and T. They have reputations for for not such great service. Um, and, and on the T Mobile side, you've got a guy with John Ledger. He's embracing social media. He's embracing customer centric sort of business. And I think that's that's a big advantage they could potentially play into here. And I think that really, I mean. I dug in. You know, we talk about always wanting to find these big long-term trends. Invest in these big long-term trends. Figure out ways to make money from those big long-term trends. I dug a little bit into this, and thanks to some great work, uh, one of my colleagues, Paul Paul Chi, over on MDP, did in regard to Verizon. We own Verizon in MDP today. And Cisco every year comes out with this white paper that sort of goes over the global uh, mobile traffic space, sort of where it was, where it is, and where it's going. And it's fascinating to look at the numbers here. If you look at global mobile traffic, it grew 63% in 2016 to 7.2 exabytes per month. Now, Jason, you're saying, what is an exabyte? (laughs) Well, you're in luck. I can tell you. An exabyte (laughs) is actually about 1 billion. Uh, gigabytes, you know the size of a gigabyte. I mean, that's that's sort of what we base most of our plans on. So think about one billion gigabytes, seven point two exabytes. It's about a little bit more than seven billion gigabytes per month um, that's traveling around the world. It's projected by two thousand and twenty-one to hit close to fifty exabytes per month. So there is this massive opportunity there in all of this it's gonna global go, it's traffic. It's going to grow that much. That's in what the four years. Is. That was, and you think about it this way. 
most of the world out there still such an opportunity because so many folks out there are still not yet connected. There are a lot of folks that are just getting uh, onto the mobile network mm-hmm. and, and figuring out the, the advantages of, of, of what uh, mobile technology can offer. So, I mean, there is just this massive opportunity there uh, in regard to the growth as far as the traffic goes. So, it's it's I think it's an opportunity for all three players, AT&T, Verizon, I think Sprint and T-Mobile pulling together here and becoming a really uh, a, a viable third player in the space. I mean, this gives them a real opportunity because it's clear to see uh, the long-term trend of where it's headed. Another area you could look at to take advantage of that is the tower operators. You've got yeah. companies like American Tower and Crown Castle um, who you can't operate these networks without them. So um, they're they're charging the the, net, the network operators rent to basically hold their antennas uh, in in all the right places. Real quick before we move on, how big a concern do you think is the antitrust issue, which will Jason, you talk about Verizon and AT&T being up at night. If if I'm involved in the leadership of either of those companies, I am absolutely screaming antitrust because this is the third and fourth largest telecom getting together. And even though the if you just look at a pie chart, if this deal goes through, you're basically looking at a pie that's been cut in three pieces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're each going to have about a third. So. On the surface of it, I just sort of look at it. Again, I have no skin in the game. I just sort of look at it and think, okay, everybody's essentially on equal footing. But it really does seem like the FCC and the Justice Department are going to take a long, hard look at this, and if nothing else, slow the deal down. I, yeah, I think you're right. I think they will go through this with a fine-tooth comb, and they'll make sure that they dot all their I's and cross all their T's. But at the end of the day, I think this does nothing but really help the consumer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, from that perspective, I don't understand why uh, they would ultimately nix this deal. I think it, it bottom line, at the end of the day, with this huge long-term trend, a big world, plenty of opportunity and share to, to, to still grab out there, I, I think bringing another viable um, competitor in, in the space only makes sense. John Flannery has been the CEO for uh, of General Electric for uh, about, an, about an hour and a half, <laughs> um, and already uh, making his mark. GE has sold its industrial solutions division to ABB, which is a maker of power grids that's based in Switzerland. $2.6 billion yeah. deal. And I think you had sort of indicated this, Taylor, when we talked about Jeff Immelt finally stepping aside as CEO. And one of the things I, I think you had raised at that time was the potential for Flannery to go in the direction of more streamlining. Yeah, it certainly seems that way. You've got uh, GE Water, um, the pending divestiture of that. Now you're looking at this business, $2.7 billion being sold for, brought in $2.6 billion in revenue, so it's being sold for slightly less than uh, one-time sales. Only brought in about $160 million in profit last year, so um, it's been underperforming, but it's being sold to a company that can probably right-size a few things. Um, in ABB, uh, the Swiss company. And uh, you look at the market, there's people out there that don't expect this to be the last divestiture from Flannery. Uh, He's going to probably talk a little bit about it when they release third quarter earnings on October 20th, and then probably fully unleash a broader strategic plan at their their annual um, analyst meeting on November 13th. So, uh, still probably some uh, a few words to be spoken by him, but folks think that you could probably even see the healthcare division be parted out or or completely sold, and that's the division that holds that he holds very near and dear to his heart. 
that would be pretty bold, don't you think? Yeah, I, I, I haven't looked too much into it, but I have seen a, a few analyst notes suggesting that that could be the case. Also, lighting and transportation. So, um, certainly some big divisions out there that could make a big splash in the M and A market. Before we get to our next story, got to give a shout out to some of our colleagues here at the Motley Fool because this weekend. In the heat uh, in DC was the Ragnar Relay, and for those unfamiliar, this is a 207-mile relay race with teams of a dozen people. And, oh, and it's been hot here lately. <laughs> oh my goodness! I was talking to a couple of them, just sort of the different legs. Everybody does three legs, so everyone's running in the neighborhood of uh, 16 miles or so, and it's it's continuous. It's mm-hmm. a it goes over uh, the span of a couple of days, and once again. I'm happy to say that the running of the Fools, which is the official name of the Motley Fools team, came in first in the corporate division out of 25 teams, and ninth overall out of 326 teams. Wow. So, kudos to Mark Brooks, Mike Padilla, Ed Gogren, Matt McKenney, Derek Newman, Denise Corsi, Nicole Nawarrel, Brian Faraday, Tracy Dahl, and a little closer to uh, the the podcasting investing space, Taylor Harris, who occasionally fills in behind the glass, J.P. Bennett, who's part of the Motley Fool Pro and Options team, and investor at large, Tim Hansen. This right. is where you cue in that fish song, Run Like an Antelope, right? I mean, this is just perfect <laughs> for that. As a matter of fact, that's what they probably ought to name the team, I think, from here on out. It would be inspiring. It's 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 good music to run There's to. There's probably a few fish fans in that fool van. <laughs> yeah. Probably. But I I think if you're one of the other teams and you're just looking at the leaderboard and you see running of the fools up at the top spot, that's going to be a little deflating. As I mentioned at the top, a glimmer of hope for Twitter. Back in May, Twitter previewed for advertisers 16 different live video shows that it was planning to stream this year, including shows from producers like Live Nation, BuzzFeed, Major League Baseball. Uh, this morning, Recode reporting that the, adverti- uh, the advertisers are buying, and in fact, Twitter has secured ad commitments for all 16 shows. So, if nothing else, this is an encouraging sign, Jason. We don't know exactly the amount of money involved here, but presumably, Twitter has structured this in such a way that the advertising supports the shows in a profitable way. Well, glimmer of hope. Those are your words, not mine. Yes. Okay, let's get very clear here. I um, no, I mean, I mean, all kidding aside. I mean, I guess, yeah, glimmer of hope. I would, I would think. I mean, it's. I was fascinated to see this was actually the case because normally, it's one thing for them to sort of present this strategy and this plan and the things that they would like to do, but then that's sort of expectations and then reality sets in and you can only do what you can really fund but to see that they were able to actually fund all this stuff is I mean it's certainly encouraging for them I mean I certainly have been very critical of um, their discovery efforts when it comes to the live video I mean if you're gonna center your business around a strategy of, of live video then it would make sense that you want to make sure your users can actually find said video and, and, and Twitter has made it very difficult I think for for anyone really to find much of the live video that's going on that on that platform now with that said I mean it is a quality experience I mean the video is of good quality mm-hmm. and, and I do think it, it's an interesting way to bring the second screen uh, together with the first screen on one screen so I mean I like the stuff that they're doing and I think that the content that they're looking to, pr- to produce is compelling and it's it's because it doesn't focus on one big audience I mean it focuses on a big cross-section of audiences so rather than finding that one thing that everybody wants to watch it's sort of a lot of different things that sort of smaller audiences may want to watch so it's a little bit of something for a lot of folks out there 
Um, and I like that. I think that's good. I mean, I think this is going to give them an opportunity to uh, try to monetize a little bit more um, on on the advertising front because I think that for their product for that platform, I think video is really the only hope. I mean, it's difficult to monetize advertising when you're scrolling through that Twitter feed so fast. Uh, whereas if someone's watching a video and you can capture those eyeballs either pre-roll or mid-roll or post-roll, um, then that's then that's good. So I. I mean, it is a good thing. I think the burden of proof is obviously still on them to show that uh, the demand is out there. But the fact that they were able to fund all of these shows does imply that perhaps the demand is there in some capacity. One partner I'm interested to see how it works out with is Live Nation. You see sports, everybody wants sports, everybody wants news. But here you might even get some live concerts on Twitter, which well, I think and, is a pretty interesting aspect of what and, this And they've, they've taken that step. I mean, I, I thought it was really neat to see. I mean, a few months ago they did, I think, the Zach Brown Band mm-hmm. opener in Atlanta, stream the whole thing live. We actually watched it on our big screen at oh, yeah. home. And so, I mean, that is a really neat experience. For sure. And I mean, I think the more they can do stuff like that, the better off they're going to be. Uh, they just still seem to be moving very slowly. Uh, you know, they just, you got to really sort of pick the pace up a little bit. Um, it's still hard to get a full read on what management's actually doing. Um, but all things considered, I mean, you know, I'll still hang on to my shares. It's a big network. It's become more more relevant today than, than ever before. So it still matters. Well, back in May when they unveiled this, they, they essentially had their own sort of mini upfront for advertisers. Mm-hmm. I assumed it was going to be somewhat akin to what we've seen Amazon do with its original programming, where Amazon, from time to time, has put out a bunch of shows where they've just said, here's a bunch of first episodes, and we're going to see what people vote for, we're going to see what people actually watch, and we're going to make our decision to back shows based on viewers' appetites. And so, I just assumed, oh, here's 16 shows, there's going to be greater interest in some than others, they're not going to run all 16 of these things. And in fact, to, to your opening point, Jason, the appetite's there. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is, when you look at the actual content that they're slinging out there, I mean, it is, it, it, it sort of, it, it definitely fires on their strengths, right? I mean, it's focused on sports, on news, on entertainment. So, you know, it's NBA, it's baseball, it's an NFL. Talk show. It's it's news with whether it's Cheddar or Bloomberg. I mean, it's entertainment with Live Nation, uh, Viacoms. I mean, they I, they do have data and they understand what their users like and they understand the age demographics of who's doing what. Um, and so, I mean, certainly they're catering that lineup somewhat around that. It's just a matter of of really uh, proving that it has staying power. I mean, this is definitely a, a positive step, um, but there is still plenty left to do. Thanks for being here, guys. Appreciate it. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.